Thank you for joining the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. Today's guest is the one and only Dean Takahashi, the lead writer for VentureBeat. He's been a tech journalist for more than 28 years, and he's covered games for 21 of those years. He's authored two books, Opening the Xbox and the Xbox 360 Uncloaked. He organizes the annual GamesBeat and GamesBeat Summit conferences. To learn more, you can visit gamesbeat.com or venturebeat.com. Dean, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Alan. Uh, thank you for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. We had the distinct opportunity to meet at AWE this year for a very short amount of time. I think we rode the escalator down, <laughs> but uh, I've been a, a big fan of yours for a long time. I read the articles that you write, and they're very insightful. They're very factual. I'm just very honored to have you on the show. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Nice interview to say. How did you start First of all, I guess you've been in the games world for a long time, but how did you kind of pivot over to VentureBeat and where you kind of look at, and, and what is VentureBeat? Let's, let's unpack what is VentureBeat for people that may, may or may not know. Yeah, I was, uh, I was a sort of a traditional uh, newspaper and magazine journalist for a long time. And then when the web came along and people started podcasting and blogging, uh, I looked around and uh, I felt like it was uh, less of a risk to go try something new than it was to stay at a, a newspaper. I was at the San Jose newspaper at the time. So about 11 years ago, uh, I joined VentureBeat, uh, and it had been started two years earlier uh, by Matt Marshall, who was a venture capital writer for the Mercury News and a, an early blogger as well. And so we were a tech news blog, and... Uh, competed at the time with the likes of uh, Gigom and TechCrunch. Uh, they have been either gone away or they, they've uh, been acquired by larger companies. Uh, we're still uh, one of the last uh, larger independent uh, tech blogs. And then within that, when I joined about 11 years ago, we started GameSpeed as well as sort of a subsection that focused on games. And we covered, at the very beginning, we're a, sort of a startup and venture capital uh, site. But now we pretty much cover the gamut of tech news and game news. And then our particular vertical focuses are on artificial intelligence on the tech side and then uh, the whole game sector. And then I guess as far as getting into VR and AR, I've, I've really followed the news. Uh, I remember seeing the um, Oculus guys and Palmer Lucky and Nate Mitchell and Brendan over at uh, one of their CES tables in the early years, <laughs> uh, well before they were acquired. I think I, I even tried to uh, get an interview with John Carmack like the day after he did a demo at E3. And the next day he was gone. Uh, so I was, I was on the hunt kind of early. <laughs> Never quite the absolute first person to dive into VR. Very close. You, you've seen it from pre-DK1 days where probably a cobbled together collection of screens, wires, and duct tape and to what it is today where you have real consumer-grade virtual reality that's not even connected to computers. You, you've seen a lot. Over the years, you've written countless articles on virtual and augmented reality. Is there anything that you may have written about before that you couldn't have predicted that has happened already? I didn't really anticipate that enterprise was actually going to take off as well as it has. I think, uh, you know, it, it was always sort of there as something that might be a market someday. But I think I expected, like everybody else, that the consumer VR was going to uh, catch on. 
wasn't sure how, how big it would be, but uh, it would catch on first. And then all of the other markets that people were talking about would follow. It sort of seems like the slower than expected acceptance of consumer VR in reality has sort of paved the way for uh, bigger opportunities uh, on the enterprise side. I think there were people early on, like folks at Sixth Sense who have the uh, the hand controllers, uh, who were talking about there are a wide variety of things that we can do with these hand controllers for VR. It didn't seem like their main efforts. They really wanted to have success in games on VR or in other kinds of consumer VR apps. It so happened that that was slow to take off and they, they started pivoting and looking around for other things they could do. They found um, medical companies uh, that were more interested in how precise those hand controllers could be. And so they started doing demos like a virtual catheter in, insertion <laughs> and uh, other kinds of uh, medical training demos. And uh, it's interesting you cost, say that yeah. because I actually did the, I did the six cents uh, demo a couple of years ago of the catheter thing. And yeah, and that was with controllers. And then this past weekend, I tried the haptics gloves. Have you had a chance to try those? I've tried some haptics gloves. Which ones in particular? Haptex, H-A-P-T-X. They're the ones that have kind of air. Yeah, I've tried theirs, but I haven't tried that particular demo. Oh, the one I tried was just incredible. This was a, a surgical demo where I reached out and I could touch the patient and I could pick things up. And Wow. Being able to, to physically pick things up in VR, it, it adds a whole new element. It was really incredible. Yeah, certainly. So I did a presentation last week and there's one of the slides I put up shows the growth of the whole XR industry and a consumer was, was leading the way. And then as of 2019, kind of by the end of this year, uh, they'll kind of crossed and consumer will keep growing, but enterprise is growing much, much faster, 30% faster than consumer. And is that what you're seeing across the board? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it, it sort of makes more sense to me that uh, as long as the prices for the headsets are lingering up pretty high, like the uh, the Cosmos from HTC, the brand new one, going to be an eight hundred dollar purchase, and even the Oculus Quest is at at four hundred, and they're they're kind of they seem to be deprecating the two hundred dollar Oculus Go, uh, so they're they're not getting good enough for the consumer price points to get traction. I think. And uh, and so the enthusiasts are buying a lot of these headsets uh, now, but uh, but there's a, there's a limited market and limited appetite. Once you get down towards where the consoles used to be, like at hundred dollar prices or two hundred dollar prices, then the, the market becomes the opportunity becomes much better. Right? And so uh, it, yeah, if we have you know these four hundred to I don't know one thousand dollar prices on these uh, headsets, uh, who's going to buy them? Right. Well, I guess if you look at who's going to save money with these headsets, then that's uh, a more interesting equation for all the enterprises. You know, if they're going to spend, I think there's a hospital in Los Angeles uh, that was spending $400,000 a year training doctors on how to, um, how to spot particular problems with, uh, you know, young babies uh, uh, who are having seizures. And uh, one of the uh, VR uh, companies uh, created uh, a simulation to do this in VR and to, to train the doctors and to, to have things in it like uh, 
parents who are panicking and screaming at the doctor uh, while, while they're trying to figure out what's going on with the with the kid. And it turns out these these are very effective and uh, they can save that particular, you know, just one hospital, save them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in training expenses uh, because uh, you're not now dedicating um, veteran surgeons and, and doctors to do this kind of training work. Uh, instead, you can do so much of it in, in VR. And uh, I think that was sort of reinforced at uh, Oculus Connect 6 uh, when Johnson & Johnston uh, announced that um, they were going to try to roll this uh, kind of training out to doctors around the world. Covering the, the so-and-so uh, called Venture Beat, you're also seeing kind of investments going to this. We're already starting to see some early investments in AR and VR that are, well, failing. And we just saw Meta and Blipper and uh, the most recent one, which was, uh, well, even ODG. There's been a number of kind of false starts with this technology. And it seems to me that timing is is a big issue. What are your thoughts around timing of uh, of this industry, you've been, you've been covering it since the very, very beginning. If you were to put your investor hat on and put money into something, where would you invest your money now? I'll defer that question to a bit later, but I, I think first, uh, just sort of talking about what's happened, uh, I, I think we had predictions that we were going to see a, a gap of disappointment uh, uh, for a few years, right? Uh, John Riccatello was one of uh, the CEO of Unity, was one of the first to point out that. Uh, there was going to be this great sort of gold rush of people who were going to overhype uh, VR and its and its potential, and uh, and then we we're going to see this gap of a disappointment where the early uh, reality didn't match up with the hype, and a lot of people were going to bail on it. And that tends to happen in in almost every industry, every every tech industry in particular. But I, I guess the the question is always whether the platform in question gets enough traction in order to survive uh, that gap of disappointment and to go on. And I think, you know, just as platforms had to plan for this, I think also a lot of the, uh, a lot of the developers have to as well, the, the game developers, um, the venture capital funds. And, you know, there were, um, there were a number of uh, venture capital funds that uh, came out with a specific focus on VR and uh, VR games in, in particular, and they're they're pivoting elsewhere as well because uh, yeah they are not seeing the the returns uh, that uh, they had hoped for. Boost Boost VC would be one of those, I think. And I think that uh, you know some of the companies that I've seen doing pivoting include uh, Playful, uh, which made is founded by Paul Bettner, and they made the uh, Lucky's Tale uh, game for the Oculus Rift. And uh, it was a flagship title that the Oculus Rift uh, launched with. And it did well enough there. Uh, but Playful sort of saw enough writing on the wall where you know they raised a lot of money uh, during the good times um, and they didn't spend it all. They got sort of ready for a oh, writing on the wall. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and they also then adapted... Uh, Lucky's Tale into a game called Super Lucky's Tale that ran as a regular traditional 2D screen uh, 3D graphics title on uh, the Xbox One. Uh, and then they spread to other platforms like the Nintendo Switch is coming uh, shortly. So 
So they invested all this money in creating a new intellectual property for virtual reality. And it made its as big a splash as it could with just a few million units in the market at the time. And, and if not even that. Um, and then they repurposed that IP and put it into uh, things that you know, had 50 million installed bases. So that's, that's generating more money for them. And it's a smart way to invest in VR titles is when you're not completely reliant on the VR revenues. And so to the degree that the titles were adaptable uh, to other 2D screens, uh, that, that was great. And those guys are still alive today and they've they raised another $23 million round. Uh, and so uh, they have, but it, talk about pivoting though, they, they're not, not talking anymore about doing a lot of flagship VR titles. They're saying those are still happening, but they are moving toward the back burner and they are uh, creating more traditional titles in the meantime. Uh, again, getting ready for a slower burn. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I think that's a really wise approach. You've got companies like Blipper who they raised $110 million and their their last round was something like $30 million and they burned through that in four months. <laughs> How do you burn yeah. through $30 million in four months? I just, I can't even. Uh, and, that's crazy. And I, I think pragmatism, being able to take the money that you raise and, and make it last, um, and I think a lot of companies, a lot of startups anyway, raise money. And, you know, I met with, uh, I went to this talk the other day and this guy was telling me, oh, we raised $10 million or whatever. And he goes, we spent half a million dollars in the first day on furniture and stuff for the office. And he goes, looking back at the money we burned on dumb stuff, he goes, we could have been so much more successful if we had not. Because once a VC hands over the money, they're not leaning over shoulder saying, what do you spend it on? They're saying, go run your company as effectively as possible. And I don't know that <laughs> buying half a million dollars in furniture is the best use of funds, but I think people need to really be pragmatic with their, with their funding and respect yeah. that every dollar yeah. counts, especially in, a, in emerging technologies. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, more critical are these more foundational companies like Facebook and Valve and HTC. You know, what are they doing? Do they still believe in it? Uh, and, you know, are they uh, putting their money where their mouth is still? It seems um, like it. It's an interesting question. It seems like it. It seems like they're still investing. Oculus is obviously, or Facebook is still investing in Oculus, obviously. And mm -hmm. there's still lots going on in that. But we're starting to see enterprise use cases pop up all over the place. I know you wrote an article on uh, PTC and Global Foundries using AR mm -hmm. to transform chip manufacturing. These enterprise use cases, which are driving real ROI. I mean, if you listen to any of the episodes on this podcast, it, it really drives home the, the fact that things like training are driving real ROI. Things like remote capture assistance and being able to use AR to overlay instructional manuals on top of things, decreasing the, the time to train for people. These are real measurable ROI components, and they're really driving this industry forward. If companies raise money now, the end of 2019, 2020, I think is the perfect time because we're only just starting to see these real ROI-driven things come out. And once that starts to catch steam, every company in the world is going to have to have an XR strategy. If they don't, then they'll just get left behind like they did in the days of the web. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Getting back to the platform owners, I think if uh, 
if you look at HTC and some of the things that they've done, you know, they did a eye tracking version of the HTC Vive here, the Vive Pro. Oh, I. And yeah, yeah. And uh, what you know, the question is, why would they do that, right? If uh, if the consumer market isn't exactly demanding that, you know, that that would be useful for things like advertising to see if the user actually looks at an advertisement that uh, is uh, in a VR app. And, um, and so that's, that's very consumer oriented as, as it is, but uh, they really kind of did that more for uh, the enterprise market and uh, training, right? And if you can confirm to uh, the, you know, the company that's doing the training that the user looked at something, saw it and un- grasped it or understood it or completely skipped it, then you have a much better idea of whether your your training is working or not. So it's, it's actual feedback that's necessary for this training market. And so uh, it's a, an expensive technology. It makes the Pro-I more expensive uh, than you know, uh, the other HTC offerings for sure. But but they're doing it because they, they realize where the money is right now. I think Oculus is rolling out Oculus for Business now, or um, is it Oculus Enterprise or Oculus for Business? Oculus for Business. Oculus for Business. Yeah, and yeah. then HTC's got their enterprise division. Uh, Hololens um, is all in and you know enterprise. And then even Magic Leap, I've heard rumors that they're going to be uh, introducing an enterprise division or an enterprise something. So a lot of people got in and said, "Hey, we're going to make games," and then they're like, eh, "Maybe we should make <laughs> training simulators or something like this." So I think there's there's been this shift, mm-hmm. in your opinion, because you you've seen waves of these new technologies come and go and become established. Mm-hmm. What, in your opinion, is the timeline looking to have ubiquitous AR or VR in per- pervasive in the world? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think if we look back at something like the the iPhone, the smartphone in general, and look at those uh, app stores and how they developed, uh, we would see that games led the way. Right. And it, it very fairly six, seven years in or so, I was looking at uh, a lot of a- uh, analytics reports and they were saying that 80 percent of the revenue of the app store was game and um, half of the usage was games. And I, I think the thing that really got traction and really took off with, uh, with users uh, was games. And that that allowed the platforms uh, to just continually expand with new things for for the consumers to embrace. And so you, you always need some kind of lead horse, you know, a lead application or a killer application uh, that's uh, going to take off. And, and in this case with VR, you know, starting in 2016, everybody thought it would be games again. And um, we have something like Beat Saber, <laughs> which has uh, had, had more than a million downloads. Awesome. But yeah, but it's not quite the same way it's it's not happening in such a large sort of growth curve now that you can make that that same comparison it's good for vr to look for all these other different applications i think you know i think training will be big i think the hazards of enterprise uh, include there are some companies out there that are really big fish and you can spend a lot of time going for them but sometimes they don't bite right and if they they don't bite, then you've spent all of this time and effort customizing some kind of application for them, and they're not enthusiastic. I don't hear that happening too much. I mean, I, I think I hear that uh, when there are big efforts to come up with a, a good enterprise app, 
uh, for training purposes in particular, then uh, that works well. Uh, so I think it just is a longer sales cycle. One of the other, I guess, business use cases that I've seen that's starting to catch traction is interactive ad formats where you can try on a pair of glasses or using face filters and stuff like that to try on glasses or makeup. Uh, I know L'Oreal purchased a company that was doing face filters for makeup, so you could try on lipsticks and eyeshadows and that sort of thing. The ability to use the device that's in everybody's hand, if we take a step back, that's still considered AR. I think that's one of the, the killer use cases. I know if you go to walmart.com slash Lego and then click see it in action, you can actually on just directly from the website, you can project a Lego set on your table and it sounds really awesome. And it is, it's really fun and exciting, but what it really gets down to it is they've increased, they've shown to increase sales by uh, 25 to 150% using just web-based interactive tools. They've doubled and tripled sales conversions. So the mobile phone-based AR is not to be uh, forgotten about either. Even though we we're talking about glasses and headsets, uh, sometimes the lowest hanging fruit is is there. I think there's some there's also some lessons in uh, uh, just uh, some of the some of the companies trying to go out too early. Uh, Cast AR is uh, a good example of that. Uh, Jerry Ellsworth and uh, Rick Johnson started that uh, over at Valve. Valve decided to go with uh, Steam VR and, and VR instead of AR, and uh, so they spun it out as uh, this company called Technical Illusions, which then became Cast AR. They had a pretty good uh, Kickstarter campaign that that raised them a lot of money uh, to do a consumer AR uh, game platform, a consumer application platform, and they did that. But then uh, the VCs came in for the next round and said, "Hey, why don't we just uh, totally?" repurpose some of this plan uh, for the enterprise uh, and uh, it was uh, it was a pivot that represented a lot of the good thinking that we, we've been thinking about or talking about here but you know their particular solution uh, did not resonate as well um, with others uh, in, in the enterprise space they raised 15 million bucks they tried to raise more um, they expanded greatly they hired a lot of people they ran out of money. So then they went bankrupt. Uh, Jerry Ellsworth uh, went back and uh, teamed up with some other employees and bought it out of bankruptcy. And uh, just last week, uh, they started a new Kickstarter to return the technology and the AR platform uh, to tabletop uh, games, digital games uh, in AR. And so that's a case study, I guess, in how things can go the opposite direction of some sort of uh, this conventional wisdom. When venture capital gets involved, they can skew or, or sway the entrepreneur's direction. It sounds like Ellsworth and, and their team were really focused on games. And to make that, to take a team that is really passionate about games and pivot them to enterprise, that doesn't seem like a recipe for success to me. Yeah. And, you know, she was fairly open about saying that she's being very careful about any particular deals uh, that the investors approach her with now, and that uh, she thinks it's a good thing that she remains CEO of this venture uh, in, in the previous venture. I agree. She had to it's interesting. Until, until a company has real scale, you know, WeWork is kind of replacing their CEO right before the IPO mm -hmm. and stuff. But until a company has reached 
a, a level of maturity where they're making recurring revenues and they're growing and they have a solid ecosystem and everything. I think it's a real disservice to the company for the venture capitalist to either replace the CEO or try to direct the CEO in a different way. And we I, I, see it kind of time and time again. You see these companies like Jaunt, for example. Here's a prime example. Jaunt was a content studio and a camera maker. Then they got rid of the camera and they said, we're going to make a content platform. Then they got rid of the content platform. We're going to make uh, volumetric capture of people. And recently they just got bought by Verizon. But, but I mean, they raised $100 million. My guess is Verizon probably bought them for pennies on the dollar. There's a company that pivoted six or seven mm-hmm. times with investors' mm-hmm. money. Yeah, exactly. And I actually wrote an essay on you know, why Blipper failed, and Blipper raised an enormous mm-hmm. amount of money on a huge valuation. But they, in my opinion, from, from what I read, they were trying to boil mm-hmm. the ocean. They were trying to be a computer vision company and an AR company and a marketing agency and a dozen different things to a dozen different people. Mm-hmm. That's just very difficult when you're dealing with huge problems like computer vision and 3D object recognition. That one problem is very hard to solve. They're trying to solve that on top of a dozen dozen other things, and none of them were yeah. making any money. And I, I think the uh, the VR companies out there are probably quite uh, familiar with the the problem that the VCs in Silicon Valley often behave like the people on the HBO show Silicon Valley. <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's just a r- ridiculous outcome sometimes. I need billionaire doors. They don't open up like billionaire doors. <laughs> That that show is so close to reality. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I, I've spent a lot of time in the valley as as you have, and it's you're looking at it like wow, you can actually nail the personas of the people in the show. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's starting to be the shift away from venture capital. One venture capital companies in general are not returning anywhere near the returns that they once were 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and so there's there's that. But also family wealth offices. Family offices who provide the capital, so endowments and family offices that provide the capital to venture capital companies, they're starting to say, you know what, rather than pay the 5% management fee, why don't we just invest ourselves? And so you're starting to see family offices acting like, like venture capital funds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it's, uh, the, the, and then, of course, a year, well, two years ago, you had this kind of crazy blockchain crypto space where everybody and their brother was doing an ICO. and you know, billions of dollars were being raised from nothing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously that crashed and burned. And I think the funding sources, VC is not the, the only funding source in, in town anymore. And that's really yeah. changing the landscape a bit. Yeah, I, I think in the case of VR too, right, you go back to the funding that comes from the platform owners and uh, Facebook in particular. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was on stage uh, saying that he still believes in VR as uh, the next computing platform and that uh, uh, they're investing in it because uh, they feel like they're in the early days of the PC and uh, uh, just see how, um, how big that became. And they think that this is going to be just as big. And I think Zuckerberg at one point said they invested $250 million in a lot of the early applications and were going to invest another $250 million. And, you know, he, he announced um, that uh, they recently, you know, crossed over $100 million uh, in sales in the Oculus store. Well, um, if you put $500 million in and you get $100 million in revenues out, 
um, that's not a win, right? <laughs> uh, that, that is uh, an indication of just how much work there is to do here. Uh, and, you know, while it is encouraging uh, to see that 100 million, you know, a company like Facebook has to just really stay in this for the long haul beyond the point where it seems like the market has jumped the shark and the VCs have all left. Other investors have decided uh, we're going to stay away from this. Uh, uh, a lot of developers, early developers, you know, have dropped out and have gone elsewhere. But Facebook has to stay the course. And um, so far, it seems like they are. Uh, they are spinning up these things like Oculus for Business. And so, you know, my, my hat's off to them for that kind of investment. And if I, if I were to compare it to something, you know, like a similar opportunity, it was back in uh, at the beginning of the Xbox when Bill Gates was looking at this. You know, he had the gigantic operating system business. He had the monopoly with uh, Office. And here he was trying to enter the video game business uh, with the Xbox back in 2000. And they lost something like a billion dollars per year in that first four years. They lost about $4 billion on the original Xbox. Uh, wow. You flash forward from that to 19 years later, and every quarter now, uh, they're generating something like a couple of billion dollars in revenue uh, in the Xbox division, right? And so uh, it took someone like Bill Gates to, to say, hey, you know what? I've got the billions of dollars. I've got a lot of cash. And, you know, this might not turn out, but in the long term, I think I'm right that I should stay the course and continue this investment. And it turns out that, you know, he had the most foresight out of anybody uh, from those days that uh, this was going to be a great thing. And, you know, to this day, it, I think it, it remains Microsoft's best uh, pivot ever. Have you been to the Microsoft campus? And it's funny because you go there and there's... I don't know, 50 buildings, they all look the exact same. They're three-story gray buildings. There's no, and then you get the Xbox building and it stands out like this, <laughs> this totally different building and you walk in, it's totally different. It's not your drab beige windows building or Microsoft Word. Yeah. yeah, and then you go into this building and it's like, it's just alive and there's games and there's people. It was just, it's neat how they built a subculture within the Microsoft culture. And it's almost like they had to kind of keep them separated. And if you look at the buildings, the way they're designed, that is a separate building. It's a separate entity. It's separate everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think they really made a long bet, but it's obviously paid off. And I think Facebook's bet on uh, VR is going to pay off. I don't know about Magic Leap yet. As long as they can keep their $4 billion raised or whatever they're up to now, as long as they can keep developing as fast as, as possible, but keep their, some powder dry for the long term. I think they'll do fine. Yeah. But companies that are raising, like Flipper raised 100, whatever, 130 million or whatever it was. I mean, it, it, it's crazy to see how much money is being tossed into some of these things. And it's just, it blows my mind. I think that it really comes down to how you define your investment horizon. Yes, exactly. If you're, a, if you're a Blipper investor or you're the Blipper CEO and you say five years, in five years, you're going to get all your money back and more, right? Yeah. Dean, I think you nailed it here because setting proper expectations for your investors, I think is essential now more than ever because there are things that will deliver 10x, 100x value in a very short amount of time, two, three, four years. AI is already delivering value beyond anybody's wildest imaginations. 
certain things take time. You've got to build the ecosystem. You've got to build the product. It's no longer a technology problem. We have technologies that, that create real value in enterprise, but it's an adoption problem. You have to factor in the fact that selling this stuff is hard. You go into a company and say, hey, you're going to decrease your training time by 50%. They're like, yeah, we'll try it next year. <laughs> Somebody who's getting into this and, and just kind of raising capital and going and making promises to investors that can't be kept. Uh, and I think that's the key is just, and trust me, I'm guilty of it. I think everybody who's ever raised money is guilty of it because every investor wants to see that beautiful hockey stick growth. But at the end of the day, that hockey stick comes over a 10-year period. It doesn't come in a year or two. We've, we've had a great conversation around investment. We've had a conversation around games and the enterprise and VR. What do you think is the next big thing uh, around the corner? Let's look out five years. Do you think Apple's going to come out with their glasses in the next five years? Uh, yes, I, I definitely think that's going to happen. There were some hints that uh, they uh, had something ready uh, to, to go with the last uh, press event, uh, but for some reason didn't uh, flip the on switch and didn't, didn't announce it. And I think they're, they're also running into the same problem that uh, everybody else is that, uh, you know, you can do a lot of uh, good engineering here, but you can't rush some of these technologies uh, that are very fundamental. Uh, you can't rush Moore's law. Um, you know, it proceeds uh, on its own pace uh, and it has to wait for actual inventions to happen. And, uh, and so while they would, I'm sure, like to do it a lot sooner, uh, uh, I think the notion of doing lightweight glasses that uh, fit on your head and wirelessly connect uh, to your phone uh, or cloud, I, I think that, that technology is on the cusp, uh, is not, not quite here yet. Um, you know, uh, throwing in a lot of uh, the processing power that's necessary on, on those glasses, uh, that, that's going to be uh, a lot of work still. And when you look at uh, people who are sort of loading up a lot of technology into these headsets, uh, you know, they're a couple pound headsets uh, by the time, time they're done. So I think Apple, Apple will do this, but I, I think they also see that what, what they have to do has to reach the mass market and uh, they don't necessarily want to start with something that's going to be a niche product. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think, you know, if, if, you know, watching Apple's previous uh, releases is any indication, I think they're going to build the ecosystem with AR kit and let people develop on the phones. They're going to make sure that the device that they ship is rock solid and ready to go. And of course, I think it's going to run wireless to your phone. So your phone will be the compute power, but the glasses are there. But I also thought it was going to be maybe 2024, 2025. I think the date might be 2022, 2023 release. So we'll see. So what problem in the world do you want to see solved using XR technologies? Well, I suppose everybody answers that they want to see the Star Trek holodeck, right? <laughs> so I'm not, I, I want to see that happen too. I, We're getting close. I, I, we, we sort of got these hints of the technology that is going to be really good with the hand tracking that uh, the Facebook showed uh, at Oculus Connect 6. And uh, uh, I tried that that demo out but my hand kept going through all of the objects in space that i was touching or trying to grab and 
uh, I really do want to have that uh, actual force feedback tell me that uh, I've touched the object and I don't have to move my fingers anymore or any further. So I, I think that's another uh, big hurdle for VR solve. And if they solve it, then we can move forward hand tracking as a kind of universal input system uh, and then you know get rid of the controllers uh, and Zuckerberg said, then we're left with basically just a headset with no wires, no straps, uh, no things in your hands. And uh, that that will make uh, the technology so much more accessible to everybody. Um, and, you know, we can start bringing in all kinds of applications that we've dreamed of for long. Well, that's it's so true. And I, and I think even if you look at the HoloLens, they're, um, they're pioneering work in hand tracking as well. And then ultra haptics and leap motion coming together, creating that uh, virtual hand tracking meets virtual manipulation of air or ultrasonics. I think we've only scratched the surface on the UX of how we communicate with computers in the era of spatial computing. So it's going to be exciting. Yeah, Dean, I thank you so much. I, I this has been a, a real honor and a treat to to have you on the show and. I am really looking forward. Anybody who wants to uh, read Dean and his colleagues' work, you can go to venturebeat.com or gamesbeat.com for the gaming side. But uh, every day you guys are, are producing amazing content that keeps us all informed. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we've also got our next Games Beat conference coming April 28th and 29th in Los Angeles, 2020. 2020 Games Beat conference in Los Angeles Yeah, in April. Mm -hmm. So sign up for that now. And, and I guess the information is at gamesbeat.com. Uh, yes, uh, on, on the events page. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, uh, Dean. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. This podcast is another amazing example about how XR technologies are revolutionizing businesses across every industry. Dean, again, thank you so, so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Being an influencer on LinkedIn in the XR field uh, really has opened up an opportunity for us to not only understand what corporations are looking for in virtual augmented mixed reality and artificial intelligence, but also from the aspect of the startup studios, developers, and enthusiasts out there and what they need. So what we decided to do after getting hundreds and hundreds of messages is to open up XR Ignite to the entire XR community of startups, studios, individuals, passionate people, and really to build a new community that brings together everybody who's passionate about this technology for a low cost and allow them to contribute, to learn, and to get better across the whole industry. That is really the reason why we started XR Ignite, to hyper-accelerate the XR for business industry, business and education. And one of the things that we just keep noticing is that there's so many resources out there. There's the VRAR Association, which we're partners with. There are you know, reports coming out daily, but there's no one source where people can come together and start just having conversations around how to get better in this industry. And that's why we started XR Ignite. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're in the corporate side, if you're a startup, if you're an individual, if you're an enthusiast, sign up today at xrignite.com and you'll be getting access to new reports, investor lists, media lists, exclusive content, 
interviews with our mentors. We have over 56 mentors. And if you're a startup and you pay an annual fee, you'll actually have the opportunity to book a one-on-one, -on -one, one hour call with one of the mentors. What we're doing with that is we're actually recording those sessions. We're transcribing them, taking out any personal information, and we're making those transcripts available to all members. So I think XR Ignite is gonna drive a lot of value for anybody in this industry who's looking to up their game and also for corporates who want a real insight as to what technology is coming out. So I would encourage everybody to sign up at xrignite.com and I really look forward to driving value, executing on our mission to hyper accelerate XR for business and education.